Hello and welcome to Food Systems, a podcast from the Forum for the Future of Agriculture, where we discuss new ideas that can shape a sustainable food system from farm to fork, from policy to consumers, and everything in between. I'm your host, Robert Agraf, and you can find us on Twitter at Forum for Ag. These episodes will be available every other week on all major podcast platforms. Before we get started, we'd like to say a quick thank you to the FFA founding partners, the European Landowners Organization and Syngenta, as well as the FFA strategic partners, Cargill, The Nature Conservancy, Rabobank, Thought for Food and the World Wildlife Fund. Please enjoy this episode. Welcome back. It's episode six of Food Systems. Today we're joined by Jeanette Wong and Tom Pell. They are the co-founders of The Clean Kilo, the UK's largest zero-waste, no-plastic supermarkets and winners of the Slow Food UK Award for Best Grocer in 2018 and the 2019 Observer Food Magazine Award winner for Best Ethical Food Project. They have one of the largest plastic-free, waste-free supermarkets. It's a growing concern. They have just opened a second store as well. And their goal is from their website to sell plastic-free products, source as local as possible, and reduce food waste. So that will be our topic of conversation today. Jeanette and Tom, welcome to Food Systems. Hello. Hi there. Thanks very much. Hi. Thank you for joining us. I just wanted to Start with the question, how did you set up the store? How did you know that there was sort of a business case, like a desire for this type of zero waste food shopping? I don't think for us it, we, it started off as a business case. Um, really, in 2017, we watched a plastic ocean and we're both in our own career jobs. And um, we realised how bad the actual plastic pollution was at that point. And we just felt like we desperately had to do something about it. Um, so it started off as an environmental pursuit, but obviously to make it into a commercial business, we did need to do some um, market research um, into the idea of zero-way shopping because it wasn't really available in the UK at the time. Um, so after months of market research, we realised that zero-way shops do exist around the world. Um, it's just that the UK were a bit slow on picking it up. So um, a few months later, there was the first zero-way shop in, in Totnes. So that kind of proved that there was an existing model and um, starting to have a demand in the UK. Uh, we did our own market research with customers outside a shop location that we wanted to um, rent. And there was a really positive response, wasn't there? Yeah, absolutely. There was... Um there were no negative um, responses at all to the concept. Um, there were a few people asking questions, but it, generally it was it was a really good response. So has it been? Was it was it then busy sort of from day one? How did you promote it? Because I've seen that you were you're quite active on social media. How do you how do you get people through the door? I mean, apart from sort of a people with an already sort of pre-existing ethical predisposition to saying we want to reduce our, our waste? I think we had quite a large social media following um, prior opening, and that's because we did um, crowdfund. So when we crowdfunded, over 500 people backed us, mainly from the local community but and from beyond as well. Um, we managed to raise over 20,000, so it became quite a, a kind of a big news story in the local area so I think there's a lot of anticipation um, for when we opened and I think on the opening day there was probably like a good 
30, 40 people outside. Um, so, yeah, I think that was really quite successful. Yeah, and um, I think because we were doing the crowdfunding marketing for that, because so many people shared it, because they wanted us to be successful in the crowdfunding, that meant that our reach was, was huge even before we had opened the shop, which was probably unheard of, really. Um, so that was really great. And yeah, like Jeanette said, there was huge numbers of people queuing up to, to come in on the first day because of the enthusiasm that we'd managed to drum up beforehand. So the people who had, who have crowdfunded you, obviously... They were among your first customers, logically. Are they still with you? Are they still? Is it still the same people that come in? We definitely see a lot of familiar faces and regulars. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd say so. There's some people that did crowdfund that actually didn't live close to the store, but just believed in the concept. So there were people like that too that come up infrequently, but generally, I would say yeah, majority. we still get the same people liking our posts and commenting on our posts that commented on them back when we crowdfunded. Yeah, we recognise the names, don't the we? The names, yeah. yeah. Um, what have you learned from them and from consumers overall while running the Clean Kilo? Were there things that you tried first that ended up not working because customers wanted something else? What has been your, your experience and, and how has it been to sort of attract new people in who maybe don't have that pre-existing mindset of we want to reduce waste and we want to save the planet to put it very broadly yeah i think one of the first things we kind of learned was that consumers want to know the truth especially kind of our target market obviously generally quite environmentally conscious intelligent people uh, they don't want to be sold at mindlessly. They want to know if they're going to buy a product. Where's it from? How's it made? Um, why is it environmentally friendly? And we try and answer those questions on our social media posts because we don't want to just sell, sell, sell. We want to tell people, OK, this product is good because of this or this product has been made by a local producer. Um, and I think we've been quite successful on that. Um, that's quite might be quite different to how other companies market perhaps um, and in terms of um, consumer habits like yeah um, you... well with, with Bourneville particularly we've noticed that because that was our second shop and we picked a residential location there were people that are now coming to the shop that would have never shopped plastic free before but because the shop is accessible as a plastic free shop so you can bring your own containers instead of buying uh, packaged goods and because we do have a wide range of products that makes it easier for the consumer to actually access plastic free and do it conveniently so that's quite important for us I think. Yeah product range is pretty key because um, a lot of I mean we, we class ourselves partly as a whole food shop but also we call ourselves a zero-waste supermarket. And even though we do have a good range of whole foods, we try not to have too many products that are too rare and that only certain um, customer types would, would appreciate. And so we try to have a, a range of mainstream products that people can, can get hold of easily and not think, well, I've still got to go to the supermarket to get this, this and this, which makes the whole experience inconvenient. Um, there will obviously be some things that we can't do, um, but we try to, to fill that range as much as possible. And, and yeah, that's, that's, I think, pretty key for us. I wanted to pick up on something, Jeanette, that you just said, that customers want to, to know the truth about food. I think this is something that in previous podcasts, a lot of our speakers have echoed. 
But what we also see, uh, certainly in the UK, is that low-price, high-volume supermarkets like Aldi and Lidl grow every year, year on year. It's about 6% a year. And they're even pushing out sort of existing mega chains like, like Tesco's. And Aldi, they're a fine supermarket, but I wouldn't say they put a premium on informing the customer of the sustainability of their, their, their products. So is this... Essentially, I mean, are you responding to a niche interest or is this something that you think that consumers in general overall are becoming more interested in? Mm, I think it's a bit of both. Yeah, I think it's obviously started as as a niche, but I think particularly in recent years, I think um, kind of environmental issues, sustainability has been on everyone's lips. And, you know, there's a growing concern about how our food is produced. And I think the kind of increase in awareness has been quite um quite huge in the last few years particularly so yeah i think eventually it's kind of like with, with fast fashion like like up until recently people loved certain certain brands and um but up until they really know the truth of how it's made then they start questioning it. and i think the same is going to happen with food that's an interesting point what we've also i think what a lot of studies have shown if not in recent years, but certainly in decades, that price remains one of the absolute key points of getting consumers in the door and, and, and keeping them there. How do you balance that that concept of, of price, but also with wanting to offer sort of more organic, more bio products from local suppliers who may not be able to, to compete if you just, you know, if you got your wheat from Canada, essentially, in, in, in giant bulk containers? How do you balance the issue of price, convenience, and also this this idea of ethical shopping? Well, um, price is important for us. We're we're quite price price conscious people, and we we did always look at prices when we were in the in the regular supermarket before we opened our own shop, and and so we went and decided that that was going to be important for us within our shop as well. So we do price compare with the supermarkets as much as we can. And we we feel that all of our prices are in line with or below the branded lines that that supermarkets have. Um, But we do find it difficult to compete with the sort of own brand Mm. supermarket products. Um, But but, but also, I mean, we do have a lot of kind of artisan um, and unique products that you can't get at the supermarket. So bread that's been baked within the city and coffee that's been roasted just down the road and crisps and oil that have been produced literally in a farm in the next county um so yeah it's it's difficult to compete on those kinds of things especially with the cleaning and reusing of containers that we give back to suppliers that adds a lot to the costs however we do we do feel like we're we're quite competitive on price and Mm-hmm. Um, we compare ourselves with with the brands quite well. Uh, we we did some of uh, some research comparing you to some of the other big supermarket chains, and I will say in a lot of categories you are pretty much level pegging. So I do think that it is possible. I'm glad you brought up the idea of suppliers. What has your in- impact been on downstream suppliers like like farmers? How difficult is it? Because if you want to have no packaging. They also have to change some of their processes. How difficult has it been for you to work with them and to get them to adopt your philosophy? I think um, it's easier with the small to medium and particularly local suppliers to ask them to change their 
very much more open-minded and probably environmentally conscious. So, for instance, we approached a local uh, crisp company and said we don't want to have packaged crisps. Is there any way that you can supply us in buckets and we take those buckets and we give it back to you and you refill it? Uh, This was completely new to them, but they were open to say, okay, we can change the production line a little bit and see see how it goes. I don't think you'd get that in a um, a large corporation. So I definitely think that the smaller ones are open to change. And, um, you know, we were the first zero shop in the country to have packaged-free crisps, and they even changed the, uh, the, the size of the crisp a little bit so it stays crispy for longer outside of that packet. Yeah, and, and that, that company, they also produce their own rapeseed oil which they make the they, they produce their own potatoes and, and rapeseed oil and make their own crisps so i think they were used to the, the idea of delivering oil in 20 litre containers which they took back possibly from other companies but the crisp was was a new thing for them which we managed to yeah. get them to do later on yeah. and now lots of other zero shops in the uk um actually stock their crisps which is fantastic so that's the product we've managed to affect the supply chain um, I think with large companies, their issues, I guess, is they're probably a little bit stuck in their ways and they've obviously invested all this money, machinery um, into their current packaging system. So for them to change, it's going to be more difficult and expensive. So they've got this efficient process going. They probably don't want to um, to, to lose that, I guess. So it, it is difficult with large companies and that's why we, we only work with kind of the small to medium-sized companies. Okay, so it, it, if you approach some of the bigger ones in the food chain, it just becomes harder for them to, to change a whole process around. So do you work with local farms as well? You mentioned this, this crisp company. Yeah, so we have um, a, a, a dairy farm in um, Shropshire called Morley Milk where we get um, buckets of milk from. And again, the same process happens. They... It, it usually has to be that they do their own deliveries so that they can take back the empties um, when they drop off the the new product um, and they also deliver from another local producer next to them so we we combine the deliveries on the same truck which is which is really fantastic um and there's also coffee yeah, and hemp oil recently hemp oil's a recent product from a farm that has really only been growing hemp for the, like the last two years 18 months really yeah um, so that's really great that that's another local thing. And they're, and they're extremely zero waste. They use every part of the plant. They're selling part of it for the fibres. And and so they've just got the same mindset as we do, which is really good to see. Speaking of the, the last time, obviously we are talking either in the aftermath or the interregnum of COVID. Certainly in the UK, cases are, are rising again. What has been your experience of covid as a zero-waste supermarket, how has it impacted your business? Mm, it's been quite a roller coaster, I'd say. Um, we were quite quick to act um, back in uh, kind of middle of March. That was when we noticed like there was increased uh, customer numbers, and that was when there was there was panic buying across the UK. Um, quite early on we actually adapted our covid measures before the supermarkets did so we decided right we need to limit the number of customers coming in to make it a safe environment and hand washing on the door those were some of the very earliest things we implemented Um, and then quite quickly i think it was kind of end of march start of april 
we we noticed the Digba shop um, was becoming very quiet. Um, so basically with Digba, it's closer to city centre and um, offices. And at that point, uh, people were advised to work from home um, and they're starting to be advised not to take public transport unless absolutely necessary. So that area became really quiet. So in the end, we had to close the Digbiff shop temporarily. And with Bourneville, we decided the safest way to continue was to actually close the shop completely to walk-in customers and offer a click-and-collect service. So we had had anticipated this happening, so we had started uploading products onto the website, but it was pretty much overnight that we made that uh, transition. So we literally 100% of sales suddenly came from click and collect instead of walking customers. And um, it was it was doing pretty well in, in Bourneville. Um, it's been a little bit slower now in the summer. I think people have, have kind of, you know, like they've gone out into different areas of the UK with their families and they're not in their normal um, kind of habits at the moment. Um, and Digbeth is back open, but we don't see the footfall that we used to. So we're still aren't able to open the six days a week that we used to. We open three days a week. Um, we still have all our kind of COVID measures um, in place. Some, a lot of things have changed, for instance. At one point, we, we wasn't allowing reusable containers. Um, so we had to pre-pack everything into paper because we felt like it was the safest way at the time to have less contact with um, less surface areas. Um, now we increase sanitation of areas and um, certain items we still paper pack. Um, majority, we do allow customers to bring their own containers and we provide um, spray sanitizers as well. Um, what else has changed? Um, the, well, we're developing delivery at the moment. That leads us quite nicely into the next question I wanted to ask. There's sort of quite a big amount of thinking at the moment that online retailing delivery that this is going to be one of the big futures not of all food retail but certainly for uh, smaller producers people with a certain niche interest is that the future for the clean kilo as well more click and collect more delivery basically yeah i think it was definitely heading that way before covid anyway but i think covid has has made a it's cemented that in really at, at the moment particularly but um for the for the medium term i think deliveries and, and online shopping will will become the the main way of of people getting things um for well, for, for, a, for a good number of people yeah i think with the um people just feel safer with it being a delivery service and you know the the older generation that hadn't you know done online shopping before Obviously, I have now experienced doing this over the last few months and quite quite used to it, and they would probably prefer it. So that will probably remain the same for kind of that medium term. I do think in the future, though, there will be a need to kind of... People want to go back to high street because of, like, social interaction. People still need something to do. Um, but that's going to be kind of when COVID is over um and yeah in the kind of long-term future hopefully there will still be the high street will still exist 
to be sure. But it is an interesting combination. We briefly touched on, on social media. You have this, this way of getting new customers through the door. You, you bring in deliveries. But how do you account for the sustainability if you move to deliveries? I mean, if you have something like trucks, it's extra emissions. If it's also an extra cost element. How do, how do you do sustainability Let's say, in the delivery segment? So what we've started to do, um, well, firstly, we did a poll to ask if our customers wanted the delivery service and in what areas. And we've been kind of um, announcing one area at a time. And obviously the reason we do it in certain areas is because that's going to be the most carbon efficient way of delivering by delivering to multiple houses in that postcode area. So, you know, not I know not every customer that we have drives to our shop, but a number of them probably do drive. So that cuts out the emissions from lots of separate journeys because we're doing the one journey to lots of people in the same area. And I think that's logistically the best way to do it. And obviously um, in terms of carbon as well. Um, and that's probably how we'll continue working and concentrate on kind of doing bulk deliveries in those areas. We do also have, for the city centre at the moment, and we might mm. expand this, we do have um, a local um, cooperative um, doing cycle deliveries for us within, I wouldn't be able to say, maybe within a mile radius. A couple um, of miles. A couple yeah. of miles, perhaps. Um, and that's obviously fantastic. And we may think about trying to do that within a, a, a similar radius within our Bourneville shop as well at some point. So we're coming up to the end of the recording. I just have two questions left. The first one is, how do you see the growth of this sector of ethical, no waste, no plastic consumer shopping? I think in terms of uh, the number of zero-waste shops, that's, you know, that's probably nearly 300 zero-waste shops in the UK now within the last three years. So there is obviously an increased demand for them and interest in them. In terms of how it can be done at supermarkets, I think the supermarkets will always have those barriers where, A, it's going to be very costly for them to change their ways, um, so they probably won't feel the need to put as much pressure on their suppliers who probably will be reluctant. Um, and they'll lose, you know, shop selling space. And they need to maximise their retail space per square foot. The logistics of um, like zero waste shopping, it takes longer. You need probably to find more staff for the um, the customer service of refilling. So, I think in that kind of way, it might be difficult for supermarkets to adapt to on a, on a large scale. But I do think it could be up to multiple independent stores dotted ac- across the country to make it accessible for people. So then I just have the final question, which is the one that we ask of everybody who comes on the podcast. What is your one idea for a better, more sustainable food system? I think food needs to be seen as a resource rather than a commodity. I think um, we often overbuy, partly because of packaging. Um, We buy more than we need. We don't end up using it and it gets thrown away. And I think sometimes... um, parts of the food that can be eaten for instance i don't know like a broccoli stalk we've kind of into the thinking that, that that's not edible that bit um 
so we waste it so i think it if food if the, the idea of food is actually a resource and all parts that's edible should be eaten and um people are organized with planning their meals there could be a like a huge reduction in in food waste yeah and i i think that um people growing their own food is, mm. is one big solution um not just as a way to always get their own food but to learn about where food comes from and um and how much effort is required to make it and and i think that would make people when they did then buy it at the supermarket or elsewhere have more of um a, an understanding of, of where it comes from and what it requires to make it i think those are two very good points on which to leave it jeanette wong and tom pell of the clean kilo thank you very much for joining the podcast today Thank you. No worries. Thank you. You've been listening to an episode of Food Systems, a podcast brought to you by the Forum for the Future of Agriculture. Look for us in two weeks when we release our new episode. And in the meantime, please don't forget to subscribe on your podcast app as well as on Twitter at ForumFag for updates on this podcast, news, as well as FFA events. Please check out our website, www.forumforagriculture.com, for more great content. Thank you for listening and enjoy your day.